Genesis chapter 2, we'll read verses 4 through 14 together as we study God's Word. God says through Moses, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for bringing us here together with the freedom to come around your word. Lord, we stand underneath your authority. Lord, we pray that as you speak to us, that we would submit, that we would listen, that we would hear, God, that we would love, that we would worship, and that we would live in light of who you are and what you have done as you reveal in your word all of that to us. We pray for you to be glorified through all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've studied together Genesis so far, we've seen in chapter 1 the faithful orderly, chronological account of how God created the heavens and the earth, and it is all literal and it is true, but after reading all about how God did all of that and all of the goodness and all of the blessing and the life that is perfectly reflecting God's glory in all of this creation, you may be wondering now, as you look around at the earth and and seeing the way that things are now, you may be wondering, what happened? (laughs) You know, we look at Genesis 1 and, and all of the amazing wonder that God created and how, how wonderful it was and how it fit together and how order, orderly and amazing it was. What in the world happened to the world? How is, it, how is it that it has become the way that it is now? What went wrong? Everything was great. There was no death. There was nothing that would have caused death. So what happened to this ideal world that God created? Well, chapter 2, verse 4, this section that we just read this morning, the beginning of this section is the account, and this is the beginning of the account of what went wrong, what happened to God's creation. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 that we just read here begins the account of the generations of the heavens and the earth. And when we started studying Genesis a few weeks ago, we looked at that word generations. It's that strange word toldot in Hebrew, and it means generations. It means uh, the, what happened, the, the generational story, the history of what happened in each of these 10 sections. There are 10 of them. This is the first one in Genesis. And we talked about that, but we didn't really talk about why that's important. Here's why this is important. Each of them focus, 
They, they each told about focuses our attention on the succeeding generations, the su- succeeding history of everything more and more narrowly because as the human population expands, each toledot becomes more focused on the lineage, the generation, the history of the coming Savior. It's the redemption history. That's why these are so important. And so chapter 5 will start the next generational history, the next toledot of Adam. And Genesis 6, 9 will begin the, that of Noah. And then the sons of Noah in chapter 10, only one of them in Shem in chapter 11 is chosen and on down the line through to Jacob as the last, the 10th Toledot in Genesis. And so it's, it's narrowing our focus and it's all, it's, it's like a funnel, just focusing our attention on, on how God will bring about the redemption of humankind because we look around and we know that something went wrong. And we need to know what that was. So here in this first one, this first generational history, we come to understand what happened, why it is the way it is now, and why we need a Savior, why we need the Messiah, Jesus. And so chapter 2 here, verses 4 through 25, is setting up again for us the original creation in all of its excellence, all of, all of its purity and excellence, even heightening it, even going a little bit farther even than, than chapter 1 did. And then chapter 3 is going, to find, is going to reveal to us how it all became stained and cursed in the way that it is now. And so really this section, verses 4 through 25, would best be covered all at once because as we know there is so much here, we're going to take this in two parts and we're just going to study 4 through 14 this morning and Lord willing, the rest of this chapter next week. But this is the account of how God made it all, how it all started. Here's the ideal, the plan the desire for creation. It sets up the idyllic conditions that God designed. And so there are five parts in this section, and we'll look at three this morning, Lord willing, the other two next week. But in the first part, verses four through six, we're going to see how God prepared the land for man. Number one, God prepared the land for man. Now, verse four, again, is the introduction to this section. It goes to the end of chapter 4, verse 26, but there's something crucial here that we might miss, or we may have missed when we read this together, just in this opening verse. As Moses begins, he goes back a little bit in the, in the account of chapter 1. He says, you know, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth, and here we understand that day doesn't always only mean 24-hour period. It doesn't have the ordinal numbers in the first day, second day, and day three. It doesn't have evening and morning. This day just means in the time that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. Moses says, let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to creation week and talk about what that looks like. And it helps us to see that in the sixth day, this is how God made man in his own image. Here's how he did it. Now, we'll talk about the timing because I know that's a big question for many of you as we read this. Wait a minute, plants and then man and how does this work? We'll get to that in a minute. But before we go too far, what we may have missed is God in this verse. We may have missed God here, and it's so important. Throughout chapter 1, Moses was talking about God, but he used that generic, um, we have it generically translated just God. It's Elohim, mighty one, powerful one in Hebrew. But here in verse 4, we get to see the name of God for the first time in the Bible. It's here in chapter 2, verse 4. The Lord God, Yahweh, God. It's all capitalized there. You see that? It's not until Exodus 3 that God reveals himself personally to Moses in this way, revealing and explaining his name, the I am, 
the eternally existent one, the life-giving, life-sustaining, all-powerful, true and living God. This is my name, I am Yahweh, the all-capital Lord. And God says in Exodus 3, the I am, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but that name, I did not reveal myself in that way to them at that time. It's only now. So how do we have it here so early in Genesis? Well, it's because that God did reveal himself that way to Moses, who is the human author here in chapter 2 of Genesis. But why is it used the here and, and this way? Like that he could have just kept saying God. He could have said Lord, the Yahweh, the, the Yah I am God, but he says Lord God. Why does he do that here? It stands out to us because this, this word for God, this compound name of God, Lord God, is used 20 times in chapters 2 and 3. 20 times, and it's not used anywhere else in the Old Testament, except one other place in Exodus 9.30, where Moses, after the seventh plague, goes to Pharaoh and says, look, I know you still don't believe in this Lord God. Every other time it's used, it's only here in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. Lord God, Yahweh, Mighty One. Why is that? Well, let's look at what happens here. This Lord God, this eternally existent, mighty one, omnipotent I am, is the personal, forever God who creates, crafts, forms man and cares for man in all the ways that we're going to see. It's the same Elohim God who was in chapter 1 creating everything in, in precision and exactness and completeness. But he's the same I am personal God who forms and fashions mankind with care and attention and is there face-to-face with man. He, he remains this God in the beauty and the purity of his original creation, but even when the creation becomes broken, when sin enters in, when death enters in, he remains in chapter 3, he remains the Lord God, the personal I am, self-existent, mighty one. Even as he removes Adam and, Eden from, Adam and Eve from Eden in chapter 3, he remains this Lord God. So our sin, he's going to be showing us, our sin does not stain him. Our sin doesn't change God. He never changes. Even if creation all around us changes, even if we are changed because of sin, God is constant. He's unchanging in his essence, his nature, and his character. He's that personal, living, I am powerful God. And he will remain that even when sin comes in. So don't let that escape your notice as we read and study chapters 2 and 3. Be reminded or learn who this God is, this amazing, personal, powerful God. There's more to him than just the words on the page, just the names that we call him. But what about the timing here? You know, in chapter 1, God made the plants, the vegetation on the third day, and man didn't come along until the sixth day. So, you know, as we read these verses, especially verse 5 here, it looks like he's saying, now before any of the plants came, God made man. Isn't that a contradiction? It would be, wouldn't it? If that's what the verses were saying. The confusion is actually because of our English translations. We understand the words here in verse 5, bush of the field and small plant of the field in the ESV. That's how they're rendered. Actually, they refer to specific kinds of plants that didn't exist in the first week of creation. Bush of the field refers to those plants that will eventually come and grow wild and take over. And they include all of those plants that have thorns and thistles and and the plants that become poisonous. In other words, weeds. The weeds is what he's referring to here, bush of the field. When do weeds come about? 
only after the entrance of sin and the curse that comes with sin in chapter 3, verse 18. So that's bush of the field. Small plant of the field refers to crops, the cereal grains, the agriculture and farming plants, like wheat and barley and certain fruits and vegetables. God didn't make farming plants until he made man to farm them. And so that's what he's talking about here. Both of these become more clear as you continue in verse 5. Neither of them had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And so that's what Moses is referring to here. Before there were weeds and before there were agricultural plants, um, God made man. And he, he actually, there are two solutions to this issue. Because the rain will come later and it waters everything, including weeds, but there's no rain yet. The farming plants need cultivating, but there's no man yet to do that cultivating. So the solutions, verse 6 has the first answer. A mist was going up from the land, the, the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, it's debated what that means, whether that was a, a fog or a mist that would come up out of the, the ground. Um, maybe that was residual from when the land came up out of the water, or maybe that was just God's plan for how it watered, or maybe it was a spring that came up, and then it, you could use it to feed uh, water other parts of the land. Whatever it was, the key is that during this week in creation, this first week of creation, things were different than they are now. It, it was different from what happens today. Today, as part of the water cycle, when rain comes, it falls onto the earth and it waters the weeds as well as all of the good plants, the beneficial plants. But sometimes rain can come down too heavily. A flood can happen or it can damage the very plants that it was sent to water. The water as rain can freeze, it can fall as devastating hail. But here, instead, the water comes up from the ground. It waters the ground where there are no weeds and it's beneficial. It doesn't damage. It doesn't come too much. It brings only good. Isn't God's plan amazing for how he cares for his creation and preparing the land for mankind? But things were different then before sin. And that's going to be, that's going to be a common theme for us. Things were different then before sin. At this point, only beneficial and beautiful plants exist. Think about that. There's, there's no poison or toxin or, for that matter, ven venom within animals. There's no poisonous or toxic plants. There's no stickers or pokers or the goat heads that we have today that are so abundant in this area, especially. There's nothing that harms or causes death. But as he said, mankind didn't exist yet, so there was no need for the plants that needed farming or cultivation. So in, in verse 7... God provides the solution for that, mankind himself. That leads us to number two. Because the land is now prepared by God. It, it's prepared for mankind's entrance by God. So the timing holds here. There, there's, no, there's no problem with the timing. We see this here. There's no mistake that has never been figured out until just now, right? <laughs> God's word holds true. But number two, in verses seven through nine, God created man and provided food for man. He created man and provided food for man. Now, in the overview of the week of creation, in chapter 1, we learn that God made man in his own image. And we heard his voice. And we heard him speaking to himself about, how he, about what man was going to be and that he was going to be in his image and that he was going to be uh, over all of creation that he could control. He was going to have dominion over creation. But now we get to see how God made man. So this, this section kind of backs up into, into 
the first week of creation, again, we're, we're backing up into, into chapter 1, but we're seeing how this came about. The Lord God formed the man. The word formed is fashioned or crafted. It, it's, a, it's a shaping, a creating like an expert craftsman. The word is usually used of a potter with clay, shaping and molding and fashioning it just the way you would have it to be. And, and the Lord God expertly crafted man out of what? Dust from the ground. Now, if you think of dust like we think of it here in northern Arizona where it's constantly blowing around, um, that's not a good picture of what dust means here. All that makes is messes and piles, right? That's all that dust does. But this dust is, is also not mud, but it's moist, rich soil from the earth. It was the soil that contained all of the necessary ingredients for a human body. What are all of those necessary ingredients? What, what is all of that? Well, in one of the commentaries that I was consulting, he said that, uh, well, if you want to make a human body, you're going to have to have certain things. You need some oxygen and some hydrogen, some water, about two ounces of salt, three pounds of calcium, 24 pounds of carbon, some chlorine, phosphorus, fat, iron, sulfur, glycerin. And as for the amounts of all of these, Dr. Mayo, Charles Mayo from one of the founding brothers of the Mayo Clinic, said in a sort of a paraphrase in a funny way, you need enough potassium for one shot of a toy pistol. You need enough fat for seven bars of soap, enough iron for one large nail, enough sulfur to delouse a dog, enough lime to whitewash a chicken coop, enough magnesia for one dose of medicine, and enough phosphorus for a few boxes of matches. So everything that you need would fit in essentially a couple of bags of a couple of grocery bags, and at his time, it would have cost you no more than about 98 cents for all the pieces to come together to make a human being. Yet, it's just too complex, isn't it? I mean, you can't just take all that stuff and gather it together and mix it all up and then form a human being. It's more complex to that. In fact, a mere piece of skin the size of a postage stamp. Here, you would need three million cells to make up just that skin the size of a postage stamp, you'd need a yard of blood vessels, three feet of blood vessels crammed into that postage stamp, four yards of nerves, 100 sweat glands, 15 oil glands, and 25 nerve endings. How do you fit all of that <laughs> into a piece of skin that so small? And yet we're told that that was all an accident, <laughs> that that all happened by itself. No, see, all of this brings praise and glory to the creator God who's so infinitely wise, crafted, fashioned, formed man. And actually, as you continue to study the human body, as you continue to study and you get smaller and smaller into atoms, the size of atoms, all those carbon atoms and all of the, the pieces and parts that make up those elements of, and pieces of what a human being is, you actually find out that there are vast quantities of space between the parts of an atom. And now it's debated whether this is a helpful picture. Um, for many, it's accurate to kind of show the, the scale of the, the space within an atom. If you could blow up the size, the, the, the nucleus of a hydrogen atom to a basketball, the, the, its electron at its farthest point would be two miles away from a basketball-sized atom, if you could blow it up to that size. In the case of a carbon atom, the distance between the electron the farthest electron at its farthest point and the, and the nucleus would be closer to seven miles away. 
That's how vast the quantities of space are, empty space within each atom. So that means, according to science, that our bodies are more than 99.9999999% empty space. (laughs) What? (laughs) But God scrapes up the moist soil from the earth. It's mostly made up of empty space. He takes all of the soil that worms inhabit, (laughs) the stuff that we walk on, the, the stuff on the ground that we clean off of ourselves. I mean, all of that, God takes up what is on the ground, the Adamah, and makes Adam, makes man. It takes the ground, Adamah, and makes Adam, mankind. And so it's humbling for us to think about where we came from. We really did come from the dirt. <laughs> but it's not the simple organi- organisms that came from the dirt and then became more complex and then grew into it. It's the way that God made us. But, so as Luther said, we are really a lump of earth. Yet, the paradox is for humankind, that for, for men and women, the paradox is that there is dignity in this human life. There's a humility, but there is a dignity because of the the animation or the God's breathing and and making animated, making alive this human being as God breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life. This word for breath is a word that's reserved only for God and mankind, never for animals. It's It's a different kind of creation that God has made in this special dirt. The word for breath is not just like a CPR, pushing oxygen into lungs, but the life-giving act of God. And so it's, it's as if God was face-to-face with this creation that he made out of dirt, and then he breathes into it and to make human beings. He, he's intimately, carefully crafting mankind, and he personally brings him to life to become a living creature. We recognize the anthropomorphisms here. That's a big fancy word that means giving human attributes to God. We know that God's a spirit. He doesn't have hands to shape and form. He doesn't have a face and you know, have to breathe or breathe into man. But it's the best way of describing the personal act of God, how intimate he is with his creation, the highest of his creation, breathing this breath of life into him. And it's the miraculous and glorifying work glorifying to God what he did in caring in such an intimate way and bringing life to us. And so it was not evolution that brought about man, nor did we bring ourselves into existence. But notice also that we were not spirit beings hanging out in like a a nice place waiting for a body to come about. And so parents, we we need to be careful as we allow our children to to be influenced by so much of the culture around us, even movies and TV shows and and beliefs of people that that teach these things. Help our children to understand that this is how God created and this this is how we have been brought about for God's glory. But it's interesting to think about this This humble dignity, this humility and dignity at the same time of mankind before God. What an honor that God reserved only for human beings, this special dirt creature, and not for any other part of creation. It's the ultimate rags to riches or dirt to riches scenario, right? We were dirt, but now he's made us, he's breathed into us, and now we have dominion over all of his creation that we can control. We don't really see all of it that way because, well, things were different then before sin. 
Much of it remains. We'll talk about it as we get there. But not only did God make man, he planted a garden in the east, verse 8 says, in Eden for man whom he had formed. There was the earth made in all its glory, reflecting God's glory, but for the height of his creation, the physically sovereign creature over the rest of the creation, God set aside a special place. It was in Eden, which means a place of pleasure. Uh, the place of pleasure, the garden of pleasure. God put a garden there. It was a specially protected, sheltered spot for his creation. Not only did it have the beauty of the earth, it was made specially for man. God caused all kinds of beautiful and tasty plants. That's what he says here, that they were, they were pleasant to the sight and good for food. <laughs> they were beautiful and tasty that's what God had caused to grow there, verse 9 says. They were, they were in addition to all the other beauty that God had made in, in all the rest of the earth. But notice that in chapter 1, there was this grand scale of the entire universe and, and the earth and everything that was happening on those grand scales. Now we're, we're starting to zero in and we're focusing on one small part, this little garden that God created for mankind. Now, don't sleep on these plants. Don't, don't ignore the plants and think, well, that's, that's a boring part. I mean, all of the plants that God's creating. The plants are pretty amazing. God made plants with what is called phytochromes. Phytochromes are multi-purpose light sensors. Depending on how much light is coming, the duration of light, the quality, the intensity of the light, the phytochromes in plants tell the plant how much to grow how to, when and how to metabolize the, their physiology and their growth and their development. And that's amazing. But recently, only in the last few years, scientists discovered that the phytochromes don't only respond to light, but also to temperature. It's amazing that plants have these built-in thermometers and light sensors without eyes, without being able to feel and have the sense of touch like we have. This elaborate system that integrates plants with their environment and, and helps them to know whether to... to flower or to leaf or to make seeds, to go dormant, everything else that they do. We used to think it was all based on light, but we've been discovering more about plants <laughs> that God made. There is a specific species of plant that was studied recently that releases an airborne chemical when it comes under attack by an insect. Now, it becomes this airborne chemical. It kind of essentially turns into text message. It's a text message from plant to plant. And it tells the other plants, look, the, the bugs are attacking, they're eating us. You need to grow your roots more quickly. They, they've been able to measure that when this, this chemical is released and received by a plant, it focuses energy on growing the roots so that it can be ready for the attack of the insect. Text messaging among plants, who knew, right? Then they also have an underground communication network. The roots work with underground fungi, and it deals not only with uh, the attacking insects and pathogens and drought, it also signals the plants to release chemicals to repel the insects, so they can communicate underground also with wired communication, telling other plants to start releasing this chemical that repels the insect, and yet another airborne chemical that tells wasps to come and eat the bugs <laughs> that are trying to attack the plants. This is amazing. The, essentially, the plants call in the natural guard, right? They, okay, sorry. I know, that was, that was bad. All right. Some plants are designed that way. Some plants are not. Specifically, more of the plants that need to be farmed, that need to be cultivated, given attention to by mankind, were not designed that way. Well, why not? 
because he designed them for us to cultivate them. That's why he didn't make them until he made man to be able to, to, to give attention to them and care for them. Now, what else was there along with all the other plants, the other trees and the cultivated farming plants that were coming about? Well, there were two special trees in the garden, the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what were those? Well, we did, we've never seen them. <laughs> we don't know what they looked like. But apparently they were immediately recognizable in some way, and at least the tree of knowledge of good and evil had fruit on it, because Adam and Eve would later eat of that fruit. What kind of fruit was it? We're not told. Many times the question is, could it have been an apple? And I'm not sure why people hate apples so much that they think <laughs> that it was the, on that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the fruit didn't have to be a poisonous fruit, it didn't have to be a sweet fruit, it could have been any kind of fruit. The death that came about was a result of the rebellion against God's word, and we'll study that, uh, Lord willing, as we get there. It wasn't the fruit itself. The text tells us that the, there were, these were two real trees, and they could tell the difference between these two trees and every other kind of tree. As for the tree of life... If it's the same tree of life that comes back and makes a return in Revelation 22, and I think it is, the tree actually produced 12 different kinds of fruits, one fruit for each month of the year. And its leaves are used in Revelation 22 for the healing of the nations. And so the tree of life would not be forbidden to Adam and Eve, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be. And again, we'll see that more and we'll study that as we get there. But for now, these two trees exist, they're recognizable, and they're different from the other trees. So God has prepared the land for mankind. He, he's created man. He's crafted and fashioned man just as a craftsman would. And then he's provided food for man. Now, up to this point, only God has done any work to creation but as verse 5 hints, God now makes this garden so that man will start to leave his mark on creation. And it will be a good mark, a, a, a beneficial mark of, of food and, and of cultivation and, and agriculture. And so God designates man to be the one to leave that mark on the land. This work of farming and, and agriculture, it becomes important not just for food, but a really important source of lessons, teachings for us to learn from. We, we learn about patience. We learn about trusting God as we do the work in agriculture. We're trusting for the Lord that, that the Lord will bring about fruits of our labors. We're trusting as we're working, we're, and we're working as we're trusting. And so we're learning, we're learning lessons even as we cultivate. And then later Jesus would use in parables um, these, these important truths of agriculture and, and plant growing. So God creates this man, he creates this garden for him to be able to eat, and, and, and Adam understands that this is for his good, and God gives this to him for his good, and so now there's fullness, there's blessing, there's peace, there's, there's provision, there's creation and life, and no death, nothing that would cause death or bring about death. These are the wonderful blessings of God. That leads us to number three. In verses 10 through 14, God's work overflowed in blessings for man. His work overflowed in blessings for man. In these verses 10 through 14, God's blessings of the garden of pleasure continue outward and overflow into the rest of the world, especially what lies right outside of it and the rivers that flow from this garden. Verse 10 says there was a river that flowed out of Eden and it watered the garden. The, the purpose of it was to water the garden and it accomplished that. It was a blessing from God. So not only did that land have that mist that came up, it had the river flowing through it to water it. 
But after it accomplished water in the garden, the river came out and it divided into four rivers. And notice the blessings that come from these four rivers. The first river flowed around the whole sandy land. That's what Havilah means, sandy land. The river was the Pishon, which probably comes from the root for breaking loose or springing forward. So it could have been a very fast-moving river. It can also mean scattering. So it could have sprung out and then scattered and and become smaller uh, rivers, tributaries, branches. But in that land that it flowed around, there was gold, and it was good gold. It was fine gold. It means quality. It didn't have to be refined as much as other gold because it was already purer than other places. It also had precious stones, delium, and some of you are saying there's a B there, but you don't pronounce the B, bdellium, no, it's, it's delium and onyx stones, which are there, and it's difficult really to pinpoint exactly which stones these were, but uh, delium today is a gum resin. It was used in perfumes like myrrh, sometimes it's called false myrrh, uh, but Israel must have been pretty familiar with it because they, they compared manna when they were trying to describe for us what manna looked like to the color of delium. Onyx here may not be truly known. What's today called onyx is a rich black stone with parallel white bands through it. It's a striking stone. If you look it up and you can see it, whether that's what it was or or something else, whatever is referred to here, there were precious and beautiful stones in this land that one of the four rivers came out and watered and encompassed. Gihon was the second river. It goes around what's called Cush. Gihon means to gush forth. So this river was most likely a a very fast-moving river. And as for the rest of the Bible, Cush means black, or when referring to a person, dark-skinned. And so some translations use Ethiopia for the place of Cush. And although there's some debate over that, most of the time in the Bible, it was in the area of Africa that um, close to or surrounding or near what we know of today as Ethiopia. But in ancient times, Cush was associated with might and military power. They had, a, they had a powerful kingdom. And although it's not mentioned here, Cush became, for the ancient world, one of the, one of the main gold-producing regions for the world. So it was a wealthy, wealthy, powerful area that this river came out and flowed around. The third river, we see translated as Tigris. The original is Hideko. And it's, it means arrow, So again, it could have been straight, it could have been fast, another fast river, but it's almost universally understood today to to refer to the Tigris River. It's said to to flow east of Assyria, but nothing else is said about it. And even less is said about the final river, the Euphrates is how we have it translated. The original is Farat. It's also, again, almost unanimously identified as the Euphrates, the mighty river of Mesopotamia. But these two final rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, needed no explanation for the people at the time when they saw these rivers that brought life to vast desert areas. Some of the harshest, some of the, the, the worst would be uninhabitable regions of the world without these rivers. So you can understand the idea behind this description is to show the beauty and the overflowing blessings that came out of the garden that came around to the rest of the world. The one river watered the garden and then it split apart into four and it still brought just overflowing blessings, precious stones and gold and life to the rest of the world. But notice that those blessings of gold and precious stones, they're outside the garden. Adam and Eve wouldn't have needed any of that. 
They didn't need any of those stones or gold or anything. They had everything they needed in the garden, and the garden was the blessing because of God's presence there with them. They didn't even need any of the overflow of the blessings. But by now, you may be wondering, where was this? Where was the Garden of Eden? Back in verse 8, Moses said, God planted it in the east. Here, he says, the river divided and became four rivers. The, last, the first two rivers are completely unknown. We don't know which ones they are for sure. The, the second two, we know fairly well. But if we knew which ones these were, we could trace them all back into the same point and then figure out, ah, that's where the garden was. But not only do we not have any idea what the first two rivers were, the second two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, don't share a common headwaters today. In fact, they're about 50 miles apart. There are only a few places in the world where two rivers shared the same source. Uh, nowhere were there three or let alone four rivers that split off of one. So what does all of this tell us? Well, again, it tells us that things were different then before sin. Where was Eden? Well, we don't know. We can't place it because, number one, first, it was blocked by God, and we'll see that as we study Genesis. The, the entrance to, to, to the garden was blocked, but second, it was destroyed by the flood. Again, as we will study that, Lord willing. But third, the geography, because of the flood, has changed too much to be able to tell where it was. The places that are named here are approximate locations. <laughs> They're given to us so that we know, well, it was over in that area. <laughs> it's just changed so dramatically so that we can't even tell exactly where it would have been. But when it was there, it was blessing. It was life. It was peace. It was what God brought to mankind. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see a return of those overflow blessings. We see that as God brings the new heaven, the new earth, as he brings the, the city of Jerusalem down, we see that the precious stones and the gold and the silver and all of those becomes the things that we build with, the things that we walk on. The eternal and highest blessing of God's presence will be enough for us forever when we get there to heaven. And all of those other blessings will just kind of overflow around us. So those are the first three of five parts to this section, just showing God's work, showing his, his care, his, his personal attention, his crafting and fashioning, his preparing, and, and all of the overflow of his blessings. We'll, Lord willing, again, study the next two next week. But what do we take from this in application? Well, first in our application, we... We realize that God's created world was spotless. It was spotless. And some of you tried to probably guess and you wrote the word perfect. That's okay, but the reason that we don't use the word perfect was because perfect is something that we, we reserve for God. God's perfect because he was perfect and he is perfect. He will always be perfect. Perfect never changes. Perfect stays the same. Spotless was his created world because there were no mistakes in it. There were no sins. There was no unrighteousness. There was no death. There was nothing that would bring that about or cause that. But it didn't have the ability to maintain that. So it was spotless. God is perfect. And God does everything well. He does everything perfectly. But it doesn't stay that way as we'll see when we get to chapter 3. This is why we say that mankind was, was created sinless. We, didn't, we don't say that mankind was created perfect, but sinless without spot in the beginning because he didn't stay that way either. But an implication as we think about this and, and what this means, there was this spotless creation. There was this garden that Adam and Eve were, were created within and they were created without sin. There was no sin around them. The, the question that comes to mind is that, that's, that comes to so many minds around us is, is, does your environment control your destiny? 
Does the environment shape the person? Does that make you who you are, your upbringing, your environment? Well, if that was true, then Adam and Eve never should have sinned, right? They were in a perfect, not perfect, they were in a spotless, pure environment. They should have been able to stay that way if environment was the only thing that impacted, influenced who you become. So God's created world was spotless. But it's not the created world that is the source of blessing. Second, in our application, God is the source of blessing and life. God is the source of blessing. Everywhere that God is, everything that God does brings blessing and life and goodness. And all his works are good. Again, we, we see that. We recognize that. But creation was spotless not because of itself, but because God made it that way. And mankind was without spot and without blemish because God made him that way. And so that when we're looking for blessing, when we're looking for life, we can't find it within ourselves. We can't find it in creation. We can't find it anywhere else besides in God alone because he is the one who is the source of all blessing and life and peace and hope. As great as all of this was, none of it was meant to be a God or a source of joy or life. God worked in all of the purity and all of the original goodness of creation, but he's still doing that today. Even though creation's been ruined by the effects of sin, by the curse brought about by sin, God's still working to bring blessing and life. He is the source of blessing and life for us, even in this sin-cursed, ruined-stained place. Because of the sin that has ruined and stained and cursed us, we have God's hope. We have God's blessings and life because he is the source of that. And the person who became our hope and our peace is Jesus. And that's why we celebrate him. That's why we observe the Lord's Supper, the, the table of communion together, exalting this Jesus, who is our hope, who is our peace. Father, we praise you and thank you for our Savior Jesus, Lord. We thank you, God, that he has come like us to be one of us, yet without sin. Father, we thank you. We praise you that you have been so good to provide for us, to shape us and fashion us. God, each of us is just the way that you imagined, the way that you designed, the way that you created us. Father, we thank you for that. Even if sometimes we, we think wrongly about ourselves and God, we wish things were differently. Father, we lift up your name because you are the creator, the expert craftsman who has made us. And Father, we know that we have sinned. We have turned away from you in rebellion. God, we've not listened to you. We've rejected your blessings and thought we could bring something better. God, we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would teach us to rejoice in who you are. God, that we'd rejoice in, in your character and your name and your essence that's reflected in the glory. That what's left here does still proclaim your glory. What's here does teach us about you and your goodness, your existence, your power. Father, we pray that we'd never lose sight of that. God, we pray that you would teach us to think about you all of the time, Father. That we'd meditate on your word and your truth. Father, we'd not fall for the world's idea of meditation, of, of emptying our mind, but we would fill our mind with your truth and meditate and, and study and think deeply about these when we have time to do that. And Father, when we don't, that the, the truths that we've thought about and, and ingested and, and chewed on and thought about, God, that they would be real and coming out of our mouths, coming out of our hands and feet, Lord, as we do and as we say and think your will. Father, thank you for your blessings, your life, your grace, your mercy to us. We praise you. We lift up your name. In Jesus' name, amen.